Hey, hey, welcome back to the Impossible Network, Season 5, where I interview storytellers, difference makers, and domain experts to tell their stories and invite them to connect with each other and challenge them to take action on issues and problems they care about, the type of problems that need solving. Think about it as a live experiment as I work to build action engines for progress. Why? Because actions matter. We have enough think tanks. If you can find shared challenges and you can bring people around those challenges in design thinking workshops, everybody feels that they've been part of coming up with a solution to something that they care about. And then again, if you look at the behavioral science behind that, the IKEA effect, we will guard, we will protect, we will love the things that we've made ourselves more than anything else. So this is the first in my Difference Maker series of interviews. And my guest is Katz Kiley, a woman of conviction and determination who's been working to change the world ever since she was a small child. I describe what Katz does at the start of the interview before inviting her to reveal who she really is as a human and what and who made her a woman of indomitable spirit. From 29 minutes in, we dive into the work that she's been doing to make a difference in the world, her current impact project, Frontline Live, before we discuss her vision and platform, codenamed Beep, to help leaders and organisations to nurture work cultures where humans thrive so their businesses thrive. Katz is a human action engine obsessed with helping people connect, collaborate and co-create. So be inspired. Now, over to Katz Kylie. Katz, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited about this. I can't tell you. Well, so I should say that today I'm with the wonderful Katz Kylie. You're a motivational speaker, podcast host, thought leader, creative, award-winning digital pioneer. You've spent the last 20 years guiding leaders on global companies through digital and cultural transformation, including the UN, which maybe you'll tell us about the story there. And you're on a mission to show leaders how to apply design thinking to help create work cultures where humans thrive, because if obviously humans thrive, the businesses will thrive. But if we really bring it down to sort of brass tacks and put it simply, you're just obsessed with really helping people. In your words, co-create, collaborate and connect. Proof of that most recently has been since the start of the pandemic, you actually stepped up and envisions built and led an innovation startup called Frontline Live to provide PPE to the frontline workers. And now, even more so, you're innovating with that. You're actually pivoting the same technology to provide much needed supplies to NGOs on the front line in Ukraine, which is just stunning. And you know, all credit and respect to you for doing that. So cats, welcome. Yeah, it's definitely not, it's not taking the easy, easy path, Mark. That's definitely not what Definitely I'm not. Well, so before we get into actually that path in detail and where that path's taking you, let's start with a, a, a big question around not what you do, but who are you? Who do you think you are actually as a human being? Who, that's a really good question. I am probably like everybody else, a product of where, from whence I came, born an Irish Catholic, big family. The youngest of definitely was not expected, like totally not expected. My mum and when you say when you say big big Catholic family, oh, only five, oh, only five. So you know, small, my <laughs> small Irish, Irish family then. Yeah, I mean, my father's family was eleven, so we were tiny compared to that. So yeah, my mum was forty-four when she found out she was pregnant with me, and my father was fifty-one. So I definitely was not expected. Um. And I think that everything I've done in some ways can be, and this is going to sound very strange, 
leads back to the fact that I grew up in a Catholic Irish family. And no matter what anybody thinks about the Catholic Church, and I have my own misgivings, believe you me, there's been some problems with the Catholic Church. The fact that I grew up in such a tight community with such a tight family as a as a young girl with three older, a lot older brothers who made me believe I could do anything and should is who I am. When you say, because that's the next question, is who or what made you you? So your brothers made you believe you could do anything because a lot of brothers wouldn't do that to a sibling. <laughs> they put them down. I, I'm blessed. My family are absolutely, this story changes, by the way. So the happy childhood changes somewhat at some point. I was born into a family. My oldest brother was 14 years older than me. They were all massive. We all went to convent school. We were all very bright. And I think they were just also intrigued by having a little baby <laughs> arrive. And I was this cute little redhead, super smart, curious thing. And I think I was just lucky that I, A, had three older brothers and an older sister who made me curious. Everything was about curiosity and helping and doing the right thing. And I think I was just incredibly lucky. And then, of course, I went to an all-girls convent school, which always makes people, the eyebrows raise when people are talking, oh, convent school girl. But what that actually means is I went to school with all girls where it was completely democratized and some people had to do STEM and therefore I did sciences and that wasn't weird because my brothers had done sciences. So it never occurred to me that a woman should behave any differently than a man or should have different interests. It just I just think I was lucky to grow up in a family where I was not only kind of supported but pushed intellectually constantly you know they'd come home from university and they'd ask me really difficult questions and I'd have to go off and find answers to things all of the time so I think the person I am who's very curious comes from that and also because I was the youngest I was kind of the peacekeeper as well so I was the one who had to solve everything all of the time because I was a cute little smart redhead so if there are any family things blow up it would always be catsy that go upstairs and sort it out and where and what's this in Sheffield Oh, so it was actually in Sheffield, right, okay. I was born here, bred here. And when you talk about your, your siblings, they created that environment and that nurtured your curiosity, encouraged it. What were they doing? What were, the, were their life focuses? We all went off to university. So oldest one was an astrophysicist, an um, astronomy. So he was an absolute boffin. The next one down was a language specialist. So he went to live in India and Mexico for years and used to write me letters back from I'm in the Himalayas. And, oh, God, I look forward to those so much. And then uh, my youngest brother did business. Mm. Well, it's all quite diverse. And my sister did science, they did languages as well. So I'm not quite sure where I came from in the midst mm. of that. <laughs> and your parents? My parents were, I mean, it's a working class family. So my, my father was like, he fixed things. Runs in the family then. You're a fixer as well. I am a fixer, yeah. Yeah, he fixed things, yeah. So, and my mother was the most incredible woman. She is tall and elegant and somehow managed to make ends meet and somehow sent us all to good schools. I've got no idea how. Credible kind of stoic northern woman who had married an Irishman, which actually in those days was really not acceptable. So I think in a way, I'm a product of who she is as well, because she would never say no. 
She would always find a way. That does sound, from what I know of you, that definitely sounds like you're a perfect combination of those two characteristics. Yes. Interesting. You never thought of that before, but I think you're right. Okay. Well, now that we have a better sense of who you are and where you've come from and who made you you. um... And the other thing I suppose I should add, Mark, is that as a young Catholic girl, it was expected of you to give back all of the time. So my weekends would be spent playing songs for old people in old people's homes or going to... Did that come from the family or the, or the convent? Uh, that came from the family. We were expected to help out and do the right thing. So right from as far as I can remember that. So service was instilled in you? 100%, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. But but you said as a female, not the, the brothers? I've got no idea because I don't know. I'm so much younger than them. I can't. And it's funny now I talk to my brother about my memory of my childhood and his, and they're so completely different because they were kind of growing up and leaving by the time I'd grown up for me to remember anything in any great detail because they were so much older than me. I mean, that- but it's very, much in, it's very much instilled in all of us mm-hmm. that it's our job to make the world a better place, mm-hmm. I think. Because I have a question, which is what were your earliest memories, a realisation that you wanted to make a difference in the world? So presumably it went hand in hand with this sort of role of, providing some form of community service. Yes. So, because, you know, I've only recently self-diagnosed, I have to say, that I'm ADHD. And I think people really misunderstand what ADHD means. And they think it means that you can't focus on things. What it actually means is that you can't focus on things you don't find interesting. So once you've got something in your sights, you cannot drop it. It's there and you can't move away from it. So there's a hyper-focus thing that happens. And I've always had this really visceral sense of fairness. Things should be fair, which has got me into all sorts of problems. But even, you know, back at convent school, it must be from my family. Or I was born with it. Who knows? And again, whatever you may think about the Catholic Church, which is as full as unfairness as any church could be or any religion could be, the Irish version of that is about looking after other people, looking after your community, sort of equality, not equality, but everyone's as good as everyone else, treat everybody the way you expect to be treated, all those kind of things. So I think I've just grown up with this embedded ethos of things should be fair. And if they're not fair, I cannot, because once I've got my head into, yeah, that's not fair, I can't step away from it. So as an example, when I was at convent school, when it got to, I got to 16, I'm 16, I could get married now. But you're telling me that you can just walk into our common room without knocking and asking for permission. Well, tell us, are we adults or are we not? So I actually got the rules that the school changed so that they had to knock if they wanted to come into our space. So there's always been this like, you know, if you can see something and you think it should be better, just try and fix it. Pull people together, get them excited about it and fix it. It's, it's interesting as you're talking and you talk about Irish upbringing, it reminds me of Bob Geldorf and his unwillingness to accept what he saw in 1983 with the um, famine in Ethiopia and kicked off Band-Aid and his tenacity and unrelenting will to drag people with him. I mean, I don't know you that well, but uh, you certainly seem to have those sort of similar characteristics of having that, getting... The- like a dog yeah. with a bone, Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, that sort of moral compass or moral imagination to sort of do something where there is injustice and you spot, whether it's just walking into a common room or 
access to frontline PPE. People, when, you know, life kicks in, reality bites, their moral compass can sometimes sort of um, go in different directions, let's say, or their sense of duty and service fades as reality does kick in and they give up. But you, you, don't, you haven't, that hasn't happened to you. You seem to have had this, been on this journey that has been purposeful and been about, as you say, um, addressing not injustice, but creating sort of a better system using the tools within your armory. So I wonder, wonder why you're different in that. I, because it's easy. You've had I, a successful was, career. You could have, you could have just taken the easy route. And as you say, you've gone down the hard path. So, um, when I was at university, I got pregnant, um, and went for an abortion. And I grew up in a Catholic family, so I couldn't do it. So I left the abortion clinic fully pregnant. Thank you very much. And, uh, because of that, my mother, um, disowned me for 12 years. And that actually underlined this sense of, unfairness and how ridiculous the world could be because suddenly from being middle-class kid doing a university degree being seen as that to being a single parent watching the way that people's attitude towards me changed was horrific and I think what that was another thing that really made me think this is not right you know at the end of the day everybody has an opportunity or should have an opportunity to be the best they can be and people are now seeing me as a different human as I was before I had my baby. And that's absurd. And so I think I am driven by an unquenchable obsession by creating an environment where everyone can achieve their potential. And, and if I see, if I see systemic problems that actually stop that happening, I can't help myself. And then I think the ADHD kicks in. And once I've seen something, I can't look away. Just look out. <laughs> like, it's just there. I can see it. I can feel it. I need to make it happen. And, you know, that's, it's a classic characteristic of an entrepreneur because you have to be a little bit insane to keep moving forward as an entrepreneur. And it's the same energy being put into a sort of non-profit environment. It's the same attributes that have kept me going with Frontline Live. Because I can see there's a better way of doing things. There's a fairer way of doing things. There's a more accountable, more transparent way of doing things. And I, every time I have another conversation with another large organization who's agreeing with me that, yes, this should happen, but mm -hmm. they're not actually adopting it themselves and they're finding it impossible to go through that change, I have to keep going. It's like a crusade. <laughs> it's interesting you said you self-diagnosed, but, you know, that, You've answered the question why you don't give up. If it is sort of a condition of this, this time call it ADHD tenacity bit between your teeth and the dog yeah. and the bone that you just keep going until you achieve what you need to achieve. How does that, how, how does that fit with, because of, aside from being a difference maker, and we should talk about the difference maker group that we're all part of. You're, you've mentioned already you were in your brother's fostered a sort of a, an, um, your curiosity or nurtured your curiosity, encouraged it. So as a creative and curious person, one of the things when I speak to people often talk about is how they deal with fragility and doubt. And when you're actually taking on something that's uncertain, where you've got to overcome a create systemic change or break down barriers, or you've confronted with obstacles, 
given you've got this tenacity, how do you deal with the natural characteristics or the natural feelings and and the, the you know the inner voice of the where fragility and doubt maybe come to you in the middle of the night or in those early hours of the morning? I I would say as we're talking, and I haven't prepared anything here, but um, I think that having gone through a couple of years of stepping off what I, I thought my plan was going to be and being a single parent and having to deal with it on my own, I don't really do fragile so much anymore. It's like that. things are never going to be that hard again. That's the truth. And I would be lying to say that I don't have moments of doubt and that uh, I don't have those moments where I'm in bed and my brain's whirring and I'm thinking, what have I done? How did I start this? Why have I started it? I, I don't think, I think because I went through such a tough time for those few years, I think that's given me this incredible resilience. Because do you know what? What's the worst that can happen? And the answer is, do you know, tomorrow's going to happen. The day after is going to happen. I'll do what I can do. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I'll find another way around. And It's funny as you're talking, um, I was the same. I was in my third year at university uh, in Edinburgh and my girlfriend got pregnant. And <gasps> we had to make that decision as well. Mm-hmm. Though I'd had a, I'd a Catholic father and a, and a Protestant mother. She didn't disown us, but but yeah, I know what it was like. You know the decision you have to make at an age when you think your life's on one path, and you go actually you're going to have to bring a child into the world and deal with that at that age, and so it does sort of change your priority somewhat. It does, and it makes you strong. Mm. What's the expression? If it doesn't kill, it doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, I, I, Afro looks like my daughter looks back now and just says, "How on earth did you do that? She's got a baby now." And she's saying, I've got partner, I'm living, I've got a stable life. You're a child, for God's sakes. How did you do that? I had no choice. And it's amazing how resilient we are if we're forced into a situation where we have to. And there's also this incredible sense of optimism and mm-hmm. thanks and blessedness. I don't know if that's actually a word that my mother's given me as well, because she was always so grateful for everything all of the time. And I'm making her sound in some ways like she's a bad character in this story. She wasn't. I mean, my father had just died. She had too much. She couldn't deal with what was going on. But, um, you know, right the way, we did make friends again. And all the way through to the very end, she had this incredible giggle and optimism and gratefulness. And I think, you know, resilience and that really deep sense of optimism and believing that things are going to be okay can keep you going through anything. I wanted to ask you about what you consider to be your natural gifts and talents. And I wonder if maybe that experience at university of having to, as you say, having to, the resilience that got you through, did it just, did you default at that point to rely on your natural gifts and talents to get you through? And what were those? Oh gosh, that's a really good question. Well, so, so as a single parent, he was at university I did. I ended up having fooled by this for years. I um, took a job as a detached youth worker to bring money in because I needed to bring money in. I had a band, so I was the lead singer of a band. Excellent. Um, <laughs> what type of band? A punk band. Well, oh, kind wonderful. Of, yeah. Very post-punk and very mm. kind of gothy, but, you know, yeah. quite a muse band. But uh-huh. And this is the Afro system. How did you do that? Where did you get the time? But uh, I suppose uh, what I can say is that what kept me going is my ability to build strong networks. 
So actually, yeah. I didn't have my family at that point, but I had a family at that point through the people I brought together, both from university, but also, you know, the local community in Winchester. Uh-huh. Of all sorts of wonderful sites. So I did get, I looked up, and I guess that's another time that I really understood how incredible people are. Mm-hmm. You know, when the shit hits the fan, They're people there for do. You. If, you, if you allow yourself to be open enough, people will fill that space and try and help. Uh-huh. Uh, that's wonderful. Um, what, what do people compliment you for? Compliment me for? Yeah. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, my voice. Um, they compliment me for my ability to be able to um, find people and connect them to make amazing things happen. Mm-hmm. So that that ties in with, I suppose, what you're, you, is a natural gift that you are a sort of a human connector. I am a human connector. And I think the other gift, and I don't know whether people compliment me for it or find it peculiar, <laughs> and it's somewhere between the two, is I can't, there is no way that I can see anything as, a, and people seem to see things as being individual data points, mm-hmm. you know, um, and things, they can focus on one thing, even though they're not looking at the things that are around it. I can't, I can only see the connections. So Sorry, I, can, you, can you explain a bit? I can. So, um, so as an example, some people will happily do a job all of their life and they don't really know what they're doing because they're just doing what they're doing. And then when you sit them down and go, how does this really help the company move forward? They'll go, oh, do you know? I don't know. Because they're just doing the thing that they're doing. Mm-hmm. They're farming, I guess. Yeah. I just can't, if I can't see the big why and I can't see where this fits into the big picture – and I can't understand the system around the problem that we're looking at, I can't move forward because I don't understand why you would. Mm-hmm. So I think I've got a very peculiar brain that looks at connections above everything else and sees connections between things that other people just don't see. Mm-hmm. I, think that's also, I think there's, there's a, there is also a, a facet of when you really sort of peel back curiosity that it's in in that. I mean, I remember going on a course in one of my early agencies I worked with, and it was on it was either I think it might be on sort of leadership or something in that way. And it talked about the you know it tries to simplify down what type of people uh, people are. And said, oh well, the small chunkers and big chunkers, people that love to work on small problems and the minutia yeah. and the detail. And then there's the big chunkers that like to see the big picture and solve big problems, and they see the connections. And it is that is exactly. As you're saying, and it's it, it's also because you're you see these this big picture, you ask questions at a bigger scale. When you're in the small chunker and you're looking at the small detail, everything's contained within that lane, within that specific task. You know, if you think about how people are working today, maybe people come and talk about this in organisations and tech. They're they're very specific. They're cast whether in Google or Facebook as a well, you're just a product designer, you're a UX designer, you're an engineer for front end, back end, whatever. And you're not looking at the big, the full system. And at the moment, we've faced so many challenges and problems that we have to be able to look at the bigger picture and see the interconnectedness and where there are problems in the system. Yes. And I think that it's something that people should be trained in from from the very youngest age. Mm-hmm. I got told off for it when I was a child. I didn't know whether that's something to do with, uh, anyway, something to do with the way my brain's made. I used mm-hmm. to get told off for it all the time when I was at school. Just like, yeah, but why? 
just because. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. That doesn't make any sense to me. I need to understand why and how that fits in with. Yeah, but that's a different subject. So, yeah, I think I've I've got a very strange brain in that way. And, you know, which is why then I think I started things like Between, which is my first company. It was all about where I managed to persuade the BBC to give us a big chunk of money to commission bits of digital artwork. So there was always a web element of the artwork, but there was also uh, a sort of live performative element. So I was always fascinated between the links between physical and virtual. Before we go down this route, because I I want to know about this, you did science, you went to university, you got pregnant, had your daughter, you were resilient, you got through it. But how did you get into this area of of leading to doing something like between? So I started doing, I did science A-levels, um, I started doing all science and art A-level. They made me drop art. I loved art. I loved writing. And I loved science. And I again, I couldn't see any difference between them. It was just, for me, it was fascinating, just understanding how things work. Um, so I hated the degree I started. I started a biology and chemistry degree, and it was awful. Hmm. It was just regurgitating stuff, and it just had no interest in me whatsoever. So I moved to a television and theatre degree. Ah. All change. <laughs> and had the most extraordinary time learning. You know, and I remember arriving at the university going, and you do a degree in this? This is, oh, my God. So we can actually write things and learn to act. And so it was the most extraordinary three years of understanding performance and technology, broadcast technology, understanding the potential of how you can use stories to engage people and bring people together. And actually a lot of the work that I did during my degree even was very much about using technology and using environments to bring people together to do weird things. And without going into too much detail, that was always been something that's fascinated me. And then when I left uni, because I was going to go to New York and be an actress, I had this thing, actually <laughs> I was going to be a single parent instead, that'll do. So I got really involved in making art with this kind of collective of weird and wonderful people. Because when you've got a child, you work around it. Mm, mm -hmm. And then I went back to do a master's degree in film. What else are you going to do as a single parent? And it was during that that I fell in love with digital Mm -hmm. and started to understand that, oh, my goodness me, this is going to change everything. Because all of these things I can do in physical space, you can suddenly start to amplify them. and, And so... That's at the end of my master's is when we got this chunk of money from the BBC. God only knows how we persuaded them to give us that money. And they basically said, it was when they set up the first website and they were like, how do we create communities? How do we interest people? How do we bring them together? So we came up with this idea of doing this commissioning scheme, which was two years, 12 pieces of work. I'm still... So proud of those pieces of work. They were so forward-thinking and so much fun. And it was a, a chance for two years out of college for me to pull to it. You know, we, ne- we didn't use any mainstream media. It was all done on digital. And this is like 2000. We're <laughs> talking back in the day. So, yeah, the whole commissioning scheme, I turned it upside down. And, again, I didn't understand why do you have to commission things in that way? Why can't we do it in a different way? So we changed it from being big pictures and just kind of arts and media people. We pulled together this massive advisory board, 
we changed the way that the works were commissioned. So they only had to give us like one side of context about what it was mm. they wanted to do. And we would just use that to make our decisions. Does it feel right? Is it interesting? Is it going to move things forward? And um, so this idea of making things condensed really became fascinating to me. And it was because of that, two years of doing that and just being at the forefront of digital, because, you know, I was just hanging around with researchers who were showing me what was going on with tech in my space of interest, which is connecting people and telling mm -hmm. stories. Uh, we had the media, we had advertising, film, and all these incredible artists who Was this we in gave Sheffield them. or London? Sheffield, but we were back with forced in London uh -huh. the whole time. Yeah. So Saatchi and Saatchi supported us over that time. And actually, we took over the gallery at some mm -hmm. point during it. So I was backwards and forwards at that point. And... It was because of that, because we, you know, we had very little money. It was a half a million quid over two years. We were giving people really small amounts of money to commission things. Mm -hmm. And they came up with the most extraordinary works just for nothing. So I was just, and then there's these huge monolithic companies, you know, the BBCs and the Channel 4s and the Microsofts, and, and they're desperate for innovation, but they've got no idea where to start. But they've got loads of money. So you've mm -hmm. got big companies with loads of money. And small artists who are really interesting, who are the innovators, yeah. really struggling. And I went, oh, it's not right. That's oh, not yeah. fair. So and that's why I set up between. <laughs> I see. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's, it, it, it was like, I need to figure out a way of building a community where these big organizations can understand the potential of digital mm -hmm. and connect in a meaningful way to these startups and artists and creatives and innovators and weird wonderful difference makers mm -hmm. but, hmm. i'm going to jump forward 2019 you gave a ted talk that i watched recently and you stated that while the scale of environmental and social problems are overwhelming there are no superhumans or big global solutions only lots of little solutions uh, to them at a global scale and that the real solution is to unleash these inner problem solvers, the inner problem solver in all of us. And I think that's a fascinating idea, but, but you've got an idea um, of how to do it. You call it greatest show for Earth, not on Earth, um, which you're calling an annual global competition to find the best local solutions to what are universal problems by applying a startup culture and technology, similar to what you've been talking about in your early days with BBC, to find the best ideas and solutions. Now, that in itself... It's just a, a massive genius idea. But my question is, ca can this really happen? Can we do it? And the ADHD of cats to kick in and help move this forward. And, and surely, if it does move forward, isn't this the ideal storytelling framework and competitive framework needed to make the global goals, the UN's SDGs, actually an accelerant, a reality. So the curator, Mel, of that TEDx in Israel told me to take reality out of the picture, pull together all of the experiments that I've run over the years and think about something that could really shift the dial. And that's what came from it. So mm -hmm. there, and, and again, it was, the, you know, at the end of the day, we know... Eurovision Song Contest works. We can get, or we, can, we know the Olympics works. We know that competitions make people change their behaviors. 
I also know beyond reasonable doubt that every human being in the right environment is capable of being an innovator. I also know that, and I've been through the mill of trying to get investment over the last few years for a platform, the entire system of the entire investment system, the entire innovation system frowns upon doing good. And even though they might say, oh, Mr. X from BlackRock is saying that they're really investing in social, they're not. They don't care. They want X amount profit. And so there is a need to rebrand the idea of doing good and doing good business being the same thing because they are. And again, I know they are because I've seen it again and again and again. I've seen what happens when people contribute to doing something that's worthwhile. There is real purpose, not purpose washing. Please stop it with a purpose washing. And so my answer would be, it's a framework that could definitely work. The challenge is, and I'm facing this with Frontline Live as well, those big organizations, even though they know that something could be done, don't want to do them. Why? Because we're humans and because humans are hardwired to resist change. And especially within a large organization, something weird happens where people lose touch with who we really are. Mm-hmm. They become, I don't know, zombies. And I- so trying to get something of that scale together, and we have to, there's no question, because we're running out of time, depends on depends on pulling together the most change-resistant organizations in the world. And my experience at the UN changed everything for me because mm-hmm. I was – bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, you know, I had this great job and a corner office in Geneva and I'm going to help them go through digital transformation. The UN, obviously, they've got a plan, right? They've got the goals. Mm -hmm. Mm, Not so much. So so you got pulled into the UN to do a digital transformation project? I did. It was a digital transformation program around a, a around. I only worked for one part of the UN. It was the International Telecommunications Union. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. which you may or may not know of, but I tell yeah. you, most of the people that I met over that year and a half either didn't know who they were, didn't know they were part of the UN, or really didn't like them at all. Especially the kind of digerati, my kind of my buddies, mm-hmm. not them. And so my job was to completely rebrand and reorganize this global event that they do on an annual basis. And the reason that the uh, international communications was set up is, and 50 years before the UN, I hasten to add, is because it was a response to telecommunications. So if you can imagine 110 years ago or whatever, the first telephones were being rolled out. If we didn't have global collaboration and policy collaboration and Mm -hmm. standards, we would never be able to connect the world. Mm-hmm. So it was the first time in history where it was absolutely necessary to have an international organization whose job it was to convene both industry, telecommunications, and policy to make sure that we actually had something that was going to work on a global scale. Yeah, and, and you know, kicking and screaming into the digital age, they did come. And, and it was the most extraordinary change that happened while I was there. 
in me in understanding how hard it is to work within a large bureaucratic hierarchical organization Mm -hmm. and how almost impossible it is to drive change because people are so caught within their patterns of doing things, but also realizing that you can do it. And you can't get transformation unless you've got human transformation. It has to start with individuals. And so you have these amazing moments going back to your design thinking theme where at the beginning of my tenure there, if I'd have gone in and gone, I'm a digital goddess, I'm going to show you how to change everything. We're going to use all this tech. I would have gone absolutely nowhere. But I didn't. I went, I've got no idea how this place works. I'm going to find the change agents. I'm going to get them inspired. And I'm going to start bringing them together into design thinking workshops so we can together design a vision and a strategy and a and they've never done any of that before. And often happens actually in these kind of programs, but people saying to me, I've got no idea why you've invited me into this. You know, I'm not a designer. You are. <laughs> I'll bet you anything by the end of this session, you'll leave going, oh my God, look, I just contributed to something there. And so it was this co-created program which bit by bit by bit affected more and more people across the organization. And and I pushed things to the limit <laughs> with people, with people, with because if you do things to people, they won't accept it. But, you know, we did the first ever open innovation competitions with young people, which is now called the Young Innovators Forum or whatever, it's still there now, where we asked young people across the world to find answers to really difficult, wicked global challenges. What are you doing with technology to be able to help X? And we brought them into Geneva and we introduced them. You know, you get some kind of young dude from Ghana who'd never left the country before, going through a lab, going through design thinking workshops with his peers, 60 young people from across the world, and just watching them understand their own potential. But then more importantly, when they start pitching to the CEOs of the telecommunication companies or the policy makers, watching them realize what the potential is of technology. Oh, my God, and you're doing this now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing we did with this incredible guy called Ewan McIntosh, we had I know a, Ewan. Do you? Yeah, yeah. I love him so much. Yeah, he, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah. He, yeah, we worked together before, before the UN, but then I brought him in to run this thing called the Meta Conference. So we had mm-hmm. 10,000 school children across the world who were watching the stream and having a kind of a meta conference. So they were discussing what was being talked about inside this quite stuffy, very high level event, three and a half day event in in Geneva. But we actually had a Twitter feed so these kids could ask questions. So you'd Mm. get a 15 year old in New York asking a question of Carlos Slim on stage. And you could just, it, it was just so incredible watching what happens when, when those barriers are broken down, just by giving people the opportunity to speak and look at the world in a different place, in a different way. So that sounds like you already created the framework for change there that you could apply to this greatest show for Earth. When you say that organizations are resistant to change and people are resistant to change, yeah, I accept that within large organizations, they're they may talk innovation and they may have their ESG policies and, and mission statements, etc. 
but the reality is things don't happen at the speed and scale we need. But with your, if you've got a proven methodology and framework from doing it before, what's stopping the greatest show for Earth from actually happening, becoming a global competition? Because the Olympics, yeah, the Olympics have sponsors, the Eurovision has sponsors. Isn't it a case of just building the the organization and then finding those sponsors that can then bring this competition for real change to life? Yes, you're exactly right, Mark. And yes, we should do it. This is exactly right. But you must remember that I'm also running a startup. So Mm -hmm. that was an incredible opportunity. And I don't think I've ever had, I had a standing ovation for that. It was just lovely. And it's had so much interest. But you can only do so many things. And even though you're a catsy and you're mm-hmm. working 60, 70 hours a week because you're a workaholic and you can't stop yourself, mm-hmm. if, you know, if that will take somebody who has the stability and the, the resources to be able to take it on and run with it. And I have, you know, inc- I can't think of any reason why it wouldn't work mm-hmm. at all. William McCaskill his one of his recent books is What We Owe the Future. I've just finished that and he, and, and he got to the end of it. He said, well, if you're still listening to this, then I have to ask the question, if not you, then who? If not now, then when? Um, he said, this applies to anyone that's interested in knowing that we have to create sort of change. If you are a change maker, if you are a difference maker, if you are creative and curious and, and restless about the, the situation that we're facing, then you need to step, step forward and do something. Yeah. So I, I suppose... Given you've talked about behavioral science, and I know you've worked with Dan Ariely in the past, and you know this design thinking for sort of systems change is something that is so widely now accepted that it, it works. What what do you think needs? I know you can't do it your own, but it, I you know I'm also doing this because I want to create my my submission is to create local engines of action or. Uh, action engines rather than think tanks to do stuff locally. So what, what do we need to do, whether it be together or with other people, and who do we need to sort of reach out to to sort of cre- start to create, piece together this global network of local community change makers? Where would, where would we have to start? And I'm going to have to drift back to my obsession, which is this platform, which is now patent pending. Mm-hmm. Patent pending. It's not built, but it's patent pending. And the concept behind that is open innovation engines are usually around the fact that somebody identifies a problem that they care about, usually from the top down, and people then respond to that. Now, if you look at, and one of those people might win, and therefore they'll feel really special. But if you look at the behavioral science behind that, everybody thinks that their own ideas are the best ideas. And we will hold on to our ideas to the ends of the world. So if you then look at that model about person at top comes down with a problem and then pushes it out and asks people to give them answers to that problem, every single one of the people that answers then thinks that their idea is the best idea. So I thought, why don't we turn it upside down and why don't we start looking at things in a different way whereby we ask people to talk about the problems. So what is it? Inside this organization, inside this city, inside, yeah, I suppose that's inside this university, inside this not-for-profit, whatever. What could we do better? What's getting in the way of you doing your best work? And build the technology platform and the ideas behind it are about 
if you can find shared challenges and you can bring people around those challenges in design thinking workshops, we're using a format that I've been using for the last 20 years. Everybody feels that they've been part of coming up with a solution to something that they care about. And then again, if you look at the behavioral science behind that, the IKEA effect, we will guard, we will protect, we will love the things that we've made ourselves more than anything else. And the same goes with anything. If we come up with an idea with people, it's our idea and it's their idea. And therefore, we're much less likely to resist change if we've been part of it. We're much more likely to make solutions work if we've been part of the process of making those solutions. And especially when it's around something that we genuinely care about rather than somebody else telling us what we should care about. Mm -hmm. What's stopping the platform from being built? <sighs> Investment. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's a question, Mark. Guess mm -hmm. how much of the investment funding, what percentage of the investment funding last year went to women founders? Oh, probably no more than 20%. Keep going with that one, Mark. Down? Down. Oh, dear. 15? Keep going with that one. Oh, no, 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 no. It's got, it can't be below 10, surely. 1%. Oh my goodness, that's, uh, yeah. And that's, and so, that's global investment. Yes. And wow. there's so much research that shows beyond reasonable adapt. And you'll see this on my LinkedIn profile. I've mm -hmm. put he, him, if you're an investor. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of, and I don't blame anyone at the end of the day. We have, we have biases and they affect the way that we behave. And whether we're aware of them or not, if you're not constantly nudged to not fall into those preconceptions, we behave differently to different groups of people. You know, we're tribal. So the same neurochemical that bonds us to people of our tribe has another, has another impact. And what else, the other thing that these chemicals do is to make us behave in a defensively aggressive way towards people who are not like us, who are from other tribes. And unfortunately, women in the grand scheme of the investment world, we're just not doing well. And there's a million excuses and a million reasons that people throw back at you, but they're just not true. It's very, very difficult. So, so the only thing that's getting in the way, so now it's, it's a very, very well-designed technology. The architecture is built, the functionality is built, the user journey is built. It's where, you know, we put it in for a patent application. So we're waiting for it. At some point, Mark, it will be built. No, I'm, <laughs> and it I'm sure will it will. Because it's literally, it's a manifestation of all of the things that I've experimented with all of my life. So, and Dan Ariely says this to me. He says, you know, cats, you, you've lived a very different life to most people. Your knowledge set is very different to most people's. It's very broad mm -hmm. and very deep. And you assume that everybody knows what you know. They don't. And therefore, you have to give people a chance to catch up with things <laughs> mm -hmm. and feel that it's possible. Well, I hope that through this, this series of conversations I'm starting to have that I'll be able to create some form of collision with someone that will help build this and make this happen. Because I think it's, you know, it feels that it's completely aligned with what I'm, I feel there's an, an urgent need to build, which I say these, these local communities are 
action engines where people can actually sort of address change at a local level and work together to solve problems by bringing together diverse minds, taking that collective ownership, like you say, the IKEA effect. And there's something that happens when you're in a design thinking workshop, whatever you want to call it. I call them dens, my particular format doesn't really matter. When you bring people together around shared problems, the differences dissolve. And that's fundamentally important. There's two things there that are fundamentally important. We've somehow managed to get technology so wrong, we've, you know, we've accentuated the tribalism. We've made people less and less able to listen to other people's points of view. And it's incredibly important that we start to bond around other things and realize actually, you know, my big brother's a Tory. I thought actually before COVID, we didn't have that much in common. It turns out we've got most things in common. There are little things that we don't agree on, but that's fine. Let's agree to differ on that. But we've lost that. So, so that's one thing, working on connections between very different people or people who appear to be very different and breaking down that mm-hmm. tribalism, which I think is at the absolute fundamental core of the problems we're experiencing now, the fact that we've mm-hmm. stopped working together. And the other thing is un- people understanding... Well, actually, that- that, but that's a really good. That's a really good point. I was listening to um, Tristan Harris talking, the guy that did the social dilemma. Uh, it was the ex Googler that uh, and he's created the movement for humane technology. He was talking yesterday about TikTok, and it is interesting when we think about the social media platforms that we use them to either distract ourselves through mindless entertainment or to identify and argue over our differences rather yes. than working the platforms that allow us to work together to solve problems. There is no platform that bring people together from diverse thinking to solve a problem. Because when you're, as you say, when you're working together, the differences dissipate because you have a shared mission. And I think that's it, that we have to get away from these anti-social media platforms and create yes. a new platform for, which is, socially purposeful platforms. Yes, and and the feeling that you get when you realise... So another thing, though, when I was at the UN, I went in there, as I say, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, feeling that the UN must have an answer. They've got the goals. Mm. Takes you very little time to realise there is no answer. Oh, my God. And the people inside those organisations... And I'm not blaming the people themselves because there's nothing wrong with them. The operating model within which they work is fundamentally, diametrically opposed to the environments in which humans thrive, Mm -hmm. in which people believe they can be problem solvers. So I think the other thing that's important about this dream of of the beep, whatever it ends Mm -hmm. up being called, who cares, Mm -hmm. is the idea that as soon as you think, oh, my God, I just solved that. I took that little piece of a thing that was bothering me and I changed something that made it better. That changes everything. BEAT is the acronym you've created for this platform, which is Behavioral... Enterprise Engagement Platform. Behavioral Enterprise Engagement Platform. So that could be for any organization. It doesn't just have to be for corporates. It could be for NGOs. It can be for local communities. It could be for local governments. It could be using this to tap into unique human potential to create transformative change. 
One of the things that I think everyone's talked about with 2023, if we think 2022 was a big year for AI and machine learning and manifesting itself in ways that people start to go, oh, I now understand what this might actually do. Is there a way to flip uh, AI from being a threat to an opportunity for organizations? Is there any way that you think that this platform once built could embrace AI machine learning? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So, and machine learning will be used in many ways. One, to make sure that people are seeing the challenges that are important to them. One, to make sure that people aren't mollycoddled into the AI, assuming that it knows what people like and don't like, because that's a disaster. But also, if you think about it, while, while all of these beeps, these challenges, these blockers, these barriers, these behaviors that get in the way or people doing their best work, all of that learning process of people discussing and commenting and getting together in workshops and figuring out solutions, all of that will generate data, which can then feed a central anonymized data bank, which can be used as, uh, 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 and if, if this, then that, modeling software, by which I mean we have seen that happening in another organization and this may occur because of that. So actually it can become, it can preempt challenges. That's our dream where actually we can start to collate the data from people across the world and pe- organizations can start learning from each other. Because one of the things I, I've talked about with over the last six months, I've been sort of working on how to re-engineer this podcast and beyond the podcast is, you know, you've got Git, for people that don't know, GitHub is like a, a repository for sort of code that developers use when building things. And you've got Stack Overflow for answering questions. And I felt, why isn't there um, a GitHub for social impact, for change, for so where you can find the people around the world that are actually working on local problems and solutions that you would never otherwise be able to find and connect with? And yes. it feels like this, this platform of what you're talking about with Beep could also manifest itself in that way. Oh, that's my dream. That's my dream. I'd love, you know, for it to become a way of people connecting. Because, you know, looking back, and I've never really thought about this before, but Between was a self-selecting community. And in some ways, it's very similar to what you're going to be doing now. It was bringing the weird and the wonderful and the influential, but very different people together in one place and allowing relationships and communities to emerge. And from that, people would start working together, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's my absolute ultimate dream to be able to take the programs that I've run time and time again for companies like GlaxoSmithKline and Boston Consulting and yada, 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 and, and give everybody the opportunity to be able to do that for themselves. In, imagine in a city... So a friend of mine used to be the mayor, Kat, used to be a mayor of Menlo Park. So I was talking to her about Beep, and she said, well, why don't, why don't we have that? Because as a council, we don't have as much money and resources we need to do all the things that need doing. But if we can unleash the potential of the people who live around here to identify the challenges of what's stopping the city working really well and, more importantly, empower them with a, with a way of them coming together in rapid prototyping workshops to come up with solutions together. That changes everything. Yeah. 
It's crazy to think when you talk going back to your it's a interesting sort of fact around women women founders. If you look at platforms, when you think about local platforms, you've got something like Nextdoor, which I don't know if you have it in the UK, but it's such a mindless waste of sort of people just talking about lost dogs and and things are happening, crime on the streets. The same amount of money have been that has been invested in Nextdoor, we've been invested in your platform to do exactly what you just described there in Menlo Park. It would be radically sort of game changing to society, and yet, is it access to the VCs? Is it just um, say bias on the part of VCs that are stopping it, or or is they just don't see the value in platforms like this? Because I would have thought someone like John Doerr. Uh, who's who's one of the partners at um, Kleiner Perkins has written a book, which is very good actually, called Speed and Scale about what we need to do to address the climate crisis. He's created a a fund, a billion dollar fund of his own money. Uh, I think it for Stanford to look at ways to accelerate um, the the speed at which we address and broaden the scale of change for climate issues, and that's just climate. I would have thought that there must be avenues to speak to people like Doer around getting your platform funded. Um, so no, I, I you know I literally will talk to anyone about it because it's my driving passion. And again, whether that's an ADHD thing or not, I can see it, I can feel it, I know it will work because I've done this again and again and again, and I just know that it just needs to be scales with the right leadership. That's an interesting thought. Let's come back to that. You know, there seems to be a profound lack of leadership, I would say. So, yeah, I would literally would talk to anyone about it. And I, I was talking for a while to a, an organization called Ashoka, and their tagline is everyone a change maker. And, and I was saying, guys, you know, I can help you. Let's get this technology. But they're just, you know, as many, many not-for-profits are, they have a way of doing things and they don't want technology to be part of that because they don't understand it, they don't know it, they don't feel comfortable with it. There are the very few change makers who will stick their neck above the parapet and who will take risks and will keep moving forward. And most of those don't end up in positions of power in large organizations. And one of the challenges with the beep is, and, and this all really came from two things. One of them was when I left the UN, I thought, okay, I, I really now understand the scale of the challenges that the world is facing and us mm. as humans on the world. I also realized that there is no way on earth that the international organizations, that the political organizations can move at fast enough to change things at the scale and the speed that they need to change. And I also then started thinking, well, if we could find a way of helping large corporates be less shit at scale and could get them to pay for the efficiencies that actually empowering their employees would create, in, in, improving their employee experience, helping them to be more agile, all of those things that everybody's talking about, if we could sell licenses to large corporates and then use some of that profit to plow back into unleashing the potential of the not-for-profits, that would be the best model ever. Now, my economic modeling is pretty bloody good for Beep. 
and the profitability is pretty good. And that's building into the model. Every license we sell to a corporate, we gift a license to a not-for-profit that's working towards the goals. But investors have problems with that. It's not pure profit. It's, well, why would you give stuff away? Well, just purely on a commercial level, giving stuff away is quite smart because then we have more data, we have more understanding, the AI gets better. No, too different. Well, it's, I thought it's interesting. I was looking at the agenda for the World Economic Forum, Davos 2023, and its theme this year is cooperation in a fragmented world. Now, um, well, Davos's public-private partnerships, they discuss, they debate, they deliberate over all these sort of forward-looking solutions. They're, they're saying, and they're in their narrative, they say, involving the metaverse um, <laughs> to deal with some of our most pressing problems. And what does, I wonder what, whether they actually know what that means in any way. This is a hilarious thing when you sort of actually hear that and you go, is that just being put in there because it's, it's the right buzzword? Yes. But, you know, while they sit in their snow covered mountaintops in Switzerland, back on the ground, the fundamental issues still remain unaddressed around just how, as you say, organizations do manage change. Within Beep, you've got a framework for change. Maybe you could just unpack a bit more the actual, what you've got, the CREATE framework. So there are having deep dived into behavioral science and through the experience and the experimentation that I've gone through myself, there are a set of conditions in which humans are the most innovative, the most creative, the most the least change resistant. And I guess that's the most important thing about this. And those conditions, pillars, whatever you want to call them, I've pulled together into a framework which helps leaders to focus on the things that really matter, which are the things which they most often completely ignore. So CE stands for community and curiosity and collaboration and co-creation, co-creation, co-creation something I go on about all of the time. If people co-create things, they will make sure they happen. R stands for reward and respect and recognition. E stands for experimentation and empathy. A for autonomy. You know, nobody, none of us like to be micromanaged. Why does anyone ever think that's a good idea? T stands for trust and transparency and if you kind of move away from the create framework and map it against the conditions that most organizational structures are built upon, it literally is diametrically opposed. Hmm. And there is a safety in what we know, even though everybody knows that the model that we have right now does not work. It does not get the best out of people. And here's a fact. So Gallup reckon that 87% of the worldwide workforce are disengaged. Wow. 87%. Now, when you're disengaged, you're more likely to leave. You're less likely to put everything into it. You're more likely to make bad decisions. You don't care. 87% of the workforce. Now, what's worse than that is when I'm talking to the kind of people I talk to when I'm helping them with their journey towards being more enlightened and possibly a bit more efficient, often, uncomfortably often, they will say, I'm surprised it's not more. <laughs> yeah. What? So it's your job as a leader to make sure that your 
organization is as efficient, as profitable as it can possibly be, but you can sit here and say to me that you know your employees are logging on and logging off. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but people are really pesky. So we'll just buy a really clever new piece of kit and then install it, and then that will change everything. Right. Okay, that might work. I've had a lot of guests on. One of the areas I'm fascinated about is what's happening in in innovation and education. And actually, I'm a member of a a group here. Well, it's a it's a network called the Trends Group, and the meetups happen in different cities. And a recent one here in December in Austin, I met a woman called Ivy, and during the pandemic, she and her younger sister set up an educational innovation platform to um, bring together kids, and it was called um, Beta Camp. And they basically they did it as a a test and said, we're going to create Beta Camp. You can join it. Instead of going to summer camp, go to Beta Camp. We cast you with other kids with similar interests as to do mini startups. And it's a 10-week program. And they give them coaching in everything they need to know from people from Google, from Facebook, they bring in. And they help these kids who are anything from age 10 to 15, 16. And then they launch a little startup. And it's that type of collaboration that's innovating the way that children children learn. And yet, you know, we look at our school system, whether it's here in the US or in the UK, and it's anything, all it's doing is it's feeding that machine which creates the 87% that you're talking about. Maybe if we're going to create real systemic change, you need to start with the education system and look at how create can create the culture of learning and the environments where children yes. can go to school and ask why. Whereas the children at home are always asking why. And when they go to school, they never ask the question why in the classrooms. I mean, it's- And going back to the beginning of this conversation, you get into trouble. I used to get into trouble all of the time for exactly. asking why. Just so, don't have time to think about that. So maybe your create framework is needs to be embedded in educational institutions rather than I mean, maybe that could be a start point. Maybe we need to, that needs to be another conversation that's pushed forward. And, and think about, you know, I mean, it's one of my dreams, and I've talked to Lord Jim about this. Lord Jim is a um, nominal uh, ex-politician, a reformed politician, but he's still in the Lords, so I guess he's still a politician. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, he's on the advisory board of BEEP. Can you imagine in schools, if you start your school experience by being incentivized? to improve the way that your school runs. Mm-hmm. So right from day dot, you're, it's okay to say, I think this could be better. Yeah. And rather than, I think this could be better, nobody does anything about it, actually give them a framework by which they can get together with their peers and come up with brilliant little fixes mm-hmm. to those blockers, those barriers, those behaviors. Changes everything. And, and I did a project with Ewan the first time I met him, actually. Extraordinary chat. But... um. Uh, it was for an organization called Bechter, and their job oh, yeah. was to bring technology into schools. And another good friend of mine, John Newbegin, was on the board at the time, and he invited me in to talk to them because they were a bit lost, as public sector organizations often are. And they were kind of despised by the people they were supposed to be procuring, the technology companies, but they were also hated by education because they were just getting it wrong. They weren't... Mm-hmm really understanding the drivers, the challenges, all of those things. And so I remember saying in this meeting, we need to, re- we need to help you understand your stakeholder groups. 
So why don't we do a co-created event whereby we pull together a community of people where we ask influencers from education, uh, which is where you came in, and uh, influencers from technology to tell you what you could do better as an organization. Let's start mm -hmm. there. And I tell you what, it wasn't easy because there were a lot of people who did not like that organization at all. So just the starting point of getting people to draw a line in the sand and stop thinking backwards. Let's think about, okay, what can we do better? How can you help them be better organization if you think you know all the answers? And so we co-created an event. And the other thing I said to them, so if your job is to bring technology into schools, the biggest stakeholder that you should be really spending time consulting with and understanding are the school children. Mm -hmm. So what do you do to make sure that you're actually delivering for them? What do you mean? Well, uh, it seems to me you've got three stakeholders. Anyway, so I ended up saying, so why don't we figure out a way whereby we can have 15 schools from the top of Scotland to the bottom of um, Cornwall and we'll allow think tanks in each of these schools of students to, to guide and amend and curate the conversations as they're happening live. I, you know, and they eventually said, oh, I don't think that's possible, is it? And I said, yeah, I think it is possible. I had no idea whether it was or not. But anyway, we figured it out. We built this big interface. We found 15 schools who were in. But the reason I'm saying all of this is that I talked to three educational consultants about how to make sure that we curated the format of the event in a way which would work for school children. And every single one of them said, don't do it. You're going to end up looking a fool. They're going to be disruptive. They won't have anything interesting to say. You can't be in a situation with like the president of Sony and some school kids because they'll embarrass you. And I remember thinking at the time, that can't be right. That cannot be right. So... So I argued and argued and we persuaded 15 schools to just join us for the first 45 minutes. And every single one of those schools stayed with us all the way through the event. Some of them actually came into school, even though they were snowed out of school. They actually got wow. coaches to other schools so they could take part. They all carried on until they went home. And the reason I'm saying all this is the capability, the potential, the untapped potential of young people scares me. And again, it's because we assume that kids can't, as opposed to we assume that kids completely can. If you trust them and give them a framework by which they genuinely feel that people are, care about what they have to say, they behave in the most extraordinary way. So, so that needs to change. Our attitude towards human potential needs to change from school up. And, and again, one of the things I started saying earlier, the more I know about behavioral science, neuroscience, social physics, the more I think that if a school child understood what I know now about my drivers and the drivers of the people who I support mm -hmm. and work with, it would change the world. If we knew what our, what our biases are, our cognitive biases are right from scratch, and could recognize those things in ourselves and were given the tools to recognize them and to learn to overcome those biases, the world would be a very, very different place. Yeah, I think we grow up in our little group of friends or your, yeah, your own little tribe, but we don't, we're not taught in school about the power of community. 
and the fact that the fundamental things that really matter in life, that how does change happen? It happens not by one person, but it's through a connect, the connective tissue of all our ideas. And that's not, if that was fostered early on in children at school, we, and you started at a very young age to understand the importance of the network effects of people and the power of shared ideas and yes. collaboration, all these things, it would fundamentally sort of change the way that society is, is structured and, and operates. It's, it's tragic. It, it seems so simple, a simple thing to change. Well, common sense. Now, there, and, and common sense is one of, it's actually the strap line for my business. And it's a throwaway term. Oh, it's common sense. But if you actually think about what that means, common is mm-hmm. something which is shared between yeah. one or more people or organizations. Sense is a means by which we can respond quickly to an external stimulus. Yeah. So that concept, when you're thinking about any organization, whether that be a school, whether that be a council, whether that be a university, whether that be a global conglomerate, same thing goes. It's a bunch of people mm-hmm. and an operating model. So common sense becomes a really pivotal concept of how we as humans can together learn to be able to be resilient and responsive to external stimuli. It's like um, Russell Brand I heard talk about common unity. You you got the word community, but actually it's common Mm. unity. And you think almost if you want to find a third, there's common sense, common unity and common good. Yes. But no, that makes that makes complete sense. Given that I've set the goal of the podcast to engineer serendipitous connections and facilitate random collisions of ideas, who do who do I need to connect you with to help you accelerate the impact and change that you're trying to affect in the world? Uh, that's a really good question. Other people who've who are as big-minded as I am and who are obsessed by create cultures. It's a really difficult one because the people who've been most formative and influential in my life have been really unexpected connections. Mm -hmm. And I think you said this earlier that it's you think you know what you need, but then you realize you're miles out. You Mm -hmm. were kind of pushing forward on an idea of what thing, what might take things forward. And then something happens and you meet someone and suddenly a whole world opens. So I don't know how to answer that question. Well then, well then let's use this an opportunity then talk about Frontline Live, which is, is working right now and having impact. It is. Because I was going to ask you, what's your ask of the Impossible Network community? But maybe you could say where you are with Frontline Live and where you want to take it and what your needs are. So the story goes at the beginning of COVID, I find myself back from spending time in San Francisco, thinking I was going to move to San Francisco and and spending most of my time in London. Suddenly I'm back in Sheffield in lockdown going, oh, shit, this was not where I was expecting to be. And I'm single. I've never been single in my life. I've never been on my own in my life. I had a child when I was a child, you know. So I find myself uh, with a gap in my time Tetris ADHD world. And uh, I was talking to a bunch of people who were already starting to look at what we could do to help people through the COVID crisis using open source technologies 
brilliant thinkers. And then I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is a nurse, a senior nurse in a hospital. And I was saying, I don't know what to do. I can't get a shopping delivery and I'm stuck here. And she went, oh, I am sorry. Well, I'm going to be going to work tomorrow and I'm going to be dealing with people with COVID and we haven't got any masks. So let's put that into perspective. And I went, okay, I am an idiot. So so then I became obsessed. There were loads and loads of people on the front line, frontline healthcare workers who were talking about this PPE crisis. And then you start thinking about the reality of what that means for those people to have to go into a, a situation racked with fear. We were feeling that even on our own without the protective equipment they need to, to live. It became really obsessive to me. And then and on the other side of this, all the people like us, the difference makers, there are loads of people doing stuff, you know, pivoting their businesses and finding ways of making things and just being human, finding ways of solving problems. And uh, and then in the middle, there's the politicians, there's the leaders mm. of the NHS Trust who are telling the frontline healthcare workers that if they speak up about uh, the fact they haven't got the PPE they need, they could cool. lose their jobs. Yeah. That's insane. It's like, so there's a bunch of people who want to help and there's a bunch of people in need and that's not being allowed to happen. Well, that's ridiculous. So so because I have spent my entire career building bits of kits to help people to be more connected, more collaborative, and I'm obsessed by open source because actually why do we keep building things and not learning from the things that went before? It doesn't make mm -hmm. any sense. So I thought, how hard would it be to build a platform where people on the front line could report when they were short of PPE, tell us what specific items they needed. We could pin that on a digital map so that people who wanted to help could bypass the middlemen and just get them what they need. Mm -hmm. So stupid idea. Four weeks later, we launched the platform, I had like 43 volunteers, everyone piled in, loads of people, a friend of yours helped, you know, from people from all over the place just went, Gina. yeah, we'll help. Gina, yeah, Gina yeah, was yeah. with us, you know, for a good six months, you know, mm -hmm. never met her in person. She was over there and, you know, but incredible. So she really helped us fast forward a year. We've, I've got Microsoft involved. They've done some engineering for us. We've had Snapchat doing a free campaign for us. We were given 16 of the biggest digital art firms, screens in the country. I, just this ridiculous groundswell of goodness humans doing what humans do best, which is kind of going, yeah, I can help. Let me help. So a year later, we have this somewhat held together with sticky tape and string platform, but we'd got about across this ecosystem that we'd pivoted, we'd brought together. We got about half a million pieces of PPE to the front line. Amazing. Amazing, right? So, yeah. so then, and of course what happens is there's a crisis People like me and you sit forward to do stuff. We learn loads. We make things happen. And then we go back to our day jobs. And all of that learning is lost. And it's like, well, no, that's not going to happen. That's crazy. Because you could see there's a need for this. It's such a simple thing. And yet for the NGOs, it's, it's like mind-bendingly innovative. Yeah, not so sure. So then we spent a year pulling together 40-odd NGOs, INGOs, smart people doing it, um, design thinking workshops to think about what such a platform could do above and beyond PPE. Because in my simple mind, it's like, well, here's a platform, it's open source. It could be 
quickly amended for any crisis where there's a supply chain breakdown and people on the front line can't get what they need. And there are people who want to help but don't know how. So we spent a good year just putting people together, listening, understanding, trying to understand what it's like to be working in an NGO and where Frontline Live could offer best value. And came up with some brilliant kind of stories, I guess. I'm, I'm, I'm banging to story. If people can hear a story and understand how things can work, then they can understand exactly what the potential of the tech is, right? And then the war started. And Katrina, who's been a volunteer since pretty well day dot, um, turned up at one of our stand-ups and uh, in tears just saying, well, isn't this what Frontline Live is for? You know, people in Ukraine are suffering. This is not going to go away anytime soon. Can we not help? So there begins the beginning of the story of what's going on in Ukraine. So it turns out that open data, open mapping, all of the things that I believe should should work, don't work so well in a war environment because, so here's a stat, um, in Ukraine, 871 hospitals have been bombed since the beginning of the war. That's, that's shocking. You don't read that in the New York Times. No. And actually, that's an old stat, so that was from December. Oh, there's a few more shocking stats that I'm just about to share with you. But the truth is that if we put granular data on a map of the volunteers mm. and the registered charities who are actually doing becomes, more of the work on the ground. targeted. Yeah, so we had to put whole security layers on. And uh-huh. Anyway, we relaunched it, um, and I've spent a lot of time talking to the NGOs, the INGOs, about how we can help them to do what they're doing better. And even though the individuals inside those organizations are bang up for a more frontline focused way of doing things, a more efficient, a more effective, a more honest, accountable, transparent way of doing things, they cannot let, they can't partner. They don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And they don't really want to be forced to be more accountable, or the people at the top don't. So here's a stat which made me growl and still makes me slightly angry. So Ukraine has raised more money than any other crisis in history, $2.6 billion. Guess how much of that money had gone to the frontline charities that are doing 95% of the work in Ukraine? A billion? Keep going. Oh, 500 million. Percentage-wise. Oh, percentage. Well, it's probably going to be something similar to the women in funded and startups are probably 10%? 0.24. There is a report so on... So, so where's the money going? So so this is the thing. I'm not saying for one second that there's any corruption involved here. I think there's a lot of that money that's being spent on the refugees, people are going to other countries. Yeah. I think that the small charities like ours, we haven't had a penny go to our coffers. We just It's all run by volunteers. We're too busy getting on and doing things to go through the bureaucratic, the forms, the waiting, the blah, blah, blah. And so um, the people who are most likely to be doing the really dangerous work and just making sure that people have got what they need are not necessarily the people who are in the large organizations. And so I think they, there is a lot of money that's being spent on delivering supplies to Ukraine, to the safe spaces. So as an example... There might be lorry loads of stuff that are taken to a, a distribution point in Kiev, and then it's kind of signed off because they've delivered on time into budget. 
But where that ends up is a different matter. So if you happen to have a big van and you're quite wealthy and you can drive to pick up stuff from the distribution center, you can do that. And maybe some of that might end up with the people who need it. Or maybe mm -hmm. not. Maybe it gets sold because it's a war. And, and where there's a war and poverty, there will be people who are making from that. And so there's no accountability. There's no transparency. There's, there's no real will from the large organizations to really know what's going on on the front line because if they do, they have to respond to it. And that's an added level of complication that they just can't be bothered with. So I've talked to some of the biggest NGOs and the people themselves are lovely, but they've got no idea how to partner because for the same reason I found at the UN, the operating model that these organizations are working within are fundamentally broken. And, you know, while I'm, when I'm talking to large organizations and I do a lot of big work with, with you know, a lot of transformation work with big corporate, I'll say to them, look, okay, it feels weird and it's a bit scary because we're doing something differently, but you know what? What's the worst that can happen? Nobody's going to die. But with the NGOs, they are. They are. And out of the 871 hospitals that are have been bombed, you know, there are literally today people are doing having to perform procedures by flashlight. Hospitals have, you know, intermittent electricity. Uh, they might have it for two hours and then it's off. And you think about what a hospital is and how much of how much of the equipment in there is dependent on on robust electricity. It's a nightmare what those people are going for. And also, you know, the... I don't know whether I'm answering your question, but, you know, the, the media, they're very interested in the thing for a short amount of time and they'll dive in and, you know, it's crisis and everybody. But I think now people believe that they've put a load of money in and therefore it must be okay over there. We've got, we've only got like 32 charities signed up to Frontline Live Ukraine, but just from those charities, the scale of the need for medical and domestic supplies is unbelievable. There's 1.9 million children who are living in shelters in Ukraine today. 6.8 wow. million people have lost their homes. And so I think a lot of the charities focus on the bits which are simpler, which are the refugees. Mm -hmm. I, and, and, and luckily, I feel that we made a very crunchy decision at the beginning of this, that we were just going to focus on the internally displaced people in Ukraine mm -hmm. because my instinct and the first research we did made me feel that they were going to be the people who'd get left behind, and it's so true. So presumably there's the two facets to the, the challenge that you got. is One is, the, as you said, the open source nature of the mapping, the, the risk of targeting. So what, how do you overcome that? And then the second one is then how do you solve the internal distribution challenge to to reduce the risk of manipulation and criminal activity to siphon off the, what is actually finally delivered to being on the ground so getting it from the to, let's call it the final mile it's a really good question and um, so what we did to reformat it to recode it to redesign it for ukraine you have to be you have to be thoroughly checked to be able to sign up as a, a registered charity, we have to go through a series of steps to make sure that you are who you say you are. And if you're a supplier and you want to sign up, 
we go through a verification process and we've built in a two-factor authentication uh, level. So to see any granular data, Mm -hmm. you have to be signed in and you have to be verified. So all you can see from the public interface is sort of city-scale data. So you can kind of get see visions, data clouds. So that's protecting our registered charities. Second question. Is once you've, let's say, it's, uh, you've matched the supplier to the NGOs with the need, is how do you then overcome the issue of getting these supplies from Kiev to the final mile to the locations where they need them without any criminal activity or being siphoned off by bad actors? Yeah, so so because we are, I mean, it's, it's the most incredible ecosystem. We've been given... About 50,000 bits of stuff by Sky, as an example. So we we sent our first HGV out on the 30th of December. Uh, it's just full of domestic and medical stuff that's been given. But I suppose the magic of how we work is it's all to do with collaboration. It's an ecosystem. Back to your point. And so we have a Ukrainian woman who's working with us here. We have a Ukrainian charity who spends time in London. The Ukrainian charity um, Manifest Mirror have raised money to be able to pay for trucks. So everything that we're doing, we're really interacting with each other all of the time. So we're tracking where the lorry's going. We'll take photographs. We've taken photographs on this side of things going into the trucks. As soon as they get there, they'll be taken to the distribution point. We'll get photographs of them being delivered. There's then another charity that might, that lovely Sasha, who's the Ukrainian woman that we work with here who are actually, who've got vans over there. So they're picking stuff up. So it's this very personal mm-hmm. network of problem solvers. So there's never a point where we lose track. Yeah. And we're back to that point, you know, at the end of the day, it's about building connections and trusting in ecosystems to emerge as and when they're necessary. It hasn't been easy. I mean, don't get me wrong. But um, now we've, the bits of the puzzle are all fitting together. Microsoft have just given us $15,000 worth of free cloud. It's just people give you the things you need when you need them, weirdly. So it's a deeply disruptive model. And the more that I talk to the NGOs, one of them, and I'm not going to start naming them because it's not fair Mm. on them because I'm not blaming them. But one of them, I was talking to somebody very senior there, and she was saying, oh, my goodness, we're – constantly people are offering to donate things to us and we can't take them because our policies won't let them. And I went, oh my God, that's great. So you can signpost them to us. She couldn't figure out how to do it. The procurement, the bureaucracy, the rules, the franchise, it was like, well, I just I can't bypass. So it's a deeply disruptive, frontline-focused, accountable, transparent, open-source model which I cannot give up, even though it does get in the way of my business, because I can see that it's the way things should be done. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my big dream, not my, our, as this kind of collective of nutters who continue to work on this on a weekly basis, is you can imagine a world where wherever there's a crisis, there's an open source mother code, if you like, which has been improved over time, and you can pick it up contextualize it to your own crisis and we can pull back the improvements to the mother code so we end up with mm-hmm. a continuously improving people driven free owned by us 
uh, platform which can be used for any crisis where there is a problem with supply chain, where people on the front line don't have the things that they need. And people like me and you want to do something about it, but just don't know how to like, break through the bureaucracy. I mean, it's maybe an obvious question, but it must it must have crossed your mind at some point. Is this just the the genesis of actually you building ultimately what will end up being Beep? Could this be the foundation of it, that it could as evolve in an organic way? Because it, you talk about it's about crisis, about supply chain, but it is about bringing people together that would otherwise help solve problems. It's, it's definitely a simple manifestation of elements of what Beep will be. Uh-huh. But, the, but the, the most important thing for me about Beep is that the whole process is about bringing people together around shared challenges and mm-hmm. fixing lots and lots of small challenges all of the time. So actually we, as the grown community, are continuously improving the world in which we live. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's taking us to a point where I can say, I think, you know, I, I think this conversation has been enlightening because of, one, inspiring because of what you've done and what you're doing and where you're going. But also it's it's it will have me now thinking about who I can connect you with to try and move this forward and how we can continue to collaborate to achieve both our, which feel to be mutually beneficial goals and missions to create positive change and accelerate change in the world. So I think this is just the beginning of the conversation that will continue and hopefully actions rather than words down the line, because I'd love to, to help you get this get this thing manifest in the world. So let's carry on the conversation. And then my final question for you is, who do we interview next? So there are two answers I'm going to give you here. One of them is one of our partners with Frontline Live, Giles Rhys-Jones. And the reason that I'm kind of, that he sprung to mind is because the piece of tech that they built is has the capacity for such profound transformation he set up a thing called, or he was the second in on an organization called uh, What Three Words, which is fully commercial, um, but they do a lot of work with not-for-profits. Um, and if you don't know what What Three Words is, you should totally go and look at it and you should get it downloaded on your phone because it basically means that it, it changes the way that we map our world. And I suppose one of the reasons I suggest him is because he had a famously good career in Ad- Adland very respected in Adland, and suddenly he takes off to be part of this crazy social enterprise startup. And the way that he's used storytelling and partnerships and collaboration to get to where they are now is just, it's a profound story. He's an amazing chap, and I've got so much respect. Because I think in a way, because I because of my journey has never been normal, I've kind of done lots of interesting things, but he had that. He had the big ad job. He had everything and a family. And for him to just step off that and follow his heart and what he knew to be the right thing, I just have so much respect for him. And the other person, and I don't know why particularly he springs to mind, is Bracken Darrell, who is the CEO of Logitech. And what I love about him is his profound humanity. I mean, he's the CEO of a very successful business, but he understands that as an incredibly privileged chap 
he can be an influencer. And most of the posts that he writes and, and, and all of the conversations I've had with him are about how we can use our influence to make the world a better place. He's an extraordinary human being. Well, it's a challenge for all of us. To, we should take on that and use our influence to make the world a better place. So it's a nice way to end it, uh, which is now close on two hours. Oh my God, low battery. That has been a while. This has been such a fantastic conversation, yeah. Mark. And I've told you things that I haven't shared with many people. And so thank you for bringing, just being brilliant, making me feel safe enough to talk about these things. Well, thank, thank you for your honesty and openness. Um, I really appreciate that. And also your, the work you're doing because it's inspiring to others. And I'm certainly, it's just the beginning of the conversation because I think we've got, we need this, this platform in the world if we're going to actually create the greatest show for earth. So yes. Yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> I can't wait to do something right. with you, Matt. Let's just do it. We should. So, Cats, thank you very much, and we'll speak to you soon. It's been such an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, thank you. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now, here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much, and see you next time. 